Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 23rd, 2022. It's lunchtime in California, and there's some late breaking news on the economics front, according to the New York Times. The House of Representatives have cleared a $1.7 trillion spending package, averting shutdown. There seems to be an element of, uh, uh, of celebration at the Times over at the Wall Street Journal, which doesn't share the Times' politics. Uh, the, the bill is only $1.65 trillion, um, and I think there's less happiness Apparently, according to the, the journal, many House Republicans oppose the measure. I wonder what this tells us about whether or not 2022 has been a good or bad economic year. It's all about grasping reality, which is very tricky when it comes to economics. We had earlier this week uh, Brad DeLong, very distinguished American economist and policymaker, teaches over at UC Berkeley on the show. He sees 2022 as a pretty successful economic year. He's a big fan of Joe Biden, so perhaps it's not quite surprising. Uh, but like going to the doctor, it's always good to go to two economists because every economist treats economics uh, differently, just like every doctor treats the body differently. Um, earlier this year in August, we did a great show with an economist at the New York Times, Peter Coy, he talked to us about how economics may not be quite the dismal science that we love to hate. Uh, Peter has um, a newsletter over at the New York Times uh, writing about economics, and I'm thrilled that he's joining us from his home in New Jersey, a rather cold New Jersey, Peter, is it? It's quite cold. It's going to go down to nine degrees tonight. Does that reflect the economy, Peter? Are we in a deep freeze or are things beginning to warm up in 2022? Uh, well, first of all, I, unlike Brad DeLong, I am not an economist, do not claim to be one. I am a journalist writing about economics. Well, that so means you're, you're good enough. When you're on the, on the New York Times, Peter, you, you count as an economist for me, maybe not a formal one with a PhD, but yeah, you know well, your way around uh, the economics uh, I, I, the science. It is, true that I, it is true that I spend a lot of time talking to economists and reading their, their stuff, so I feel I can fairly reflect what people are telling me these days. Go, and, 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 and people have probably joked before on this one, Peter, but I can't resist. Don't be coy on this. Okay, you I'll try an economist. You've qualified an economist. That's why you're on the show. If you didn't, I wouldn't have you on. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so to answer your question, the uh, U.S. economy went into a deep freeze uh, when COVID hit, and it was the worst recession measured by the decline in uh, the output and the increase in unemployment that is on record. It was just, but it, but it was extremely brief. It was basically one month long. And the economy has done remarkably well since then, to the point where the unemployment rate now is probably below it's stable level. In other words, there it's it's so low that employers are having trouble filling jobs, and that's keeping upward pressure on wages. Of course, we also have high inflation coming from the supply side of the economy. That is, uh, the high price of oil and other goods. 
So the economy is running hot. It's not running cold at all right now. It's too hot for the Federal Reserve, which, as you know, has been raising interest rates. It raised it by three quarters of a percentage point, which is a very big increase four times in a row. And then most recently slowed down to a half point increase. Most economists are predicting further, although smaller declines in 2023. And then the question is what happens to the economy as a result of that? And many uh, people are looking at this and saying a recession is likely in the coming yeah time. and you uh you wrote an interesting piece actually uh, earlier this week uh right. in the times suggesting um actually yesterday uh, the day before yesterday december 21 a strong signal that recession is looming um is that good or bad I mean, well it's bad. bad i mean you get i'll get letters coming into me from people saying well so what's so bad about a recession it's just flushing out the excesses and uh, get in popping bubbles. And that's an old argument that uh, goes back to Andrew Mellon, the, the wealthy former secretary of the treasury who talked about, uh, you know, exactly that kind of thing, uh, getting rid of excess. Uh, but in reality, a recession is just a bad thing. What it means is it's like, it's like in the old days before we had, sophisticated science with uh, medicine you used to bleed the body and that was supposed yeah. to be a good way of, of treating disease is that fair peter I, I think that's that's an excellent analogy that's sort of that's the point i'm trying to make here which is uh we understand now that when somebody's sick you don't make them sicker by getting extracting blood from their body you you try to help them convalesce you give them you know fluids for example <laughs> you actually support them and that's what we want to do to keep the economy out of recession. What, what's good about a situation where somebody who wants to work cannot work because, because there are no jobs? Well, that's the assumption about 2023. At the moment, anyone who wants to work can. Let's Before we get to 2023, let's talk about 2022. There. As I said, uh, Brad DeLong, who um, has worked for several Democratic administrations, credits the Biden administration with the success, the strong economy in 2022. Would you echo, Brad, do you think that ultimately Biden can take credit for the, the strong economy in 2022? Uh, some, but if you're going to give him credit for the strength of the economy, you also have to give him some of the blame for the high inflation because they go together. It's the strength of the economy, the strength of demand that caused prices to go up so much. So uh, I basically, I'm very sympathetic to the Biden administration's efforts and give Congress credit too, because Congress passed the legislation he was seeking. I think it was a good thing to do to throw a lot of money at the economy back in 2021. And that's why what could have been a severe downturn ended up not being so bad after all, uh, because consumers had money to spend. Uh, so you take the good with the bad. The, the good part is uh, the economy kept rumbling along quite well. People had jobs, people were happy. The bad news is that it did result in higher inflation and it's taking a while to wring that out of the system. What's your take on the 
the bill that's just gone through, whether it's 1.7 trillion according to the Times or 1.65 according to the yeah. Journal, yeah. seems to me talking to you that there's a kind of weird time lag when it comes to spending and politics, that these bills were put together, what, six months, a year ago, in an entirely different economic climate. So in, a, in the sense that they may have been appropriate a year ago, they're no longer appropriate. Is that fair? Uh I do not entirely agree with that because actually these bills are smaller. The, the, most of the stimulus has worked its way through the system and it's gone now. And so these are much thinner spending bills than the, the U.S. was putting on back in 2021. So when economists, regardless of their political stripe, but they just, they're just neutrally trying to figure out what will happen, not what should happen, but what will happen, are, are saying that the lack of fiscal stimulus or the fact that it's going away now will be a net drag versus the current status. Uh, we had a couple of times Chris Leonard on the show. I'm sure, sure you're familiar with his book, The Lords of Easy Money, how the Federal right. Reserve broke the, the American economy. He's a big critic of right. Federal Reserve policy, particularly right. in, in the last Great Recession. What's your take on uh, whether or not the Federal Reserve has effectively dealt with our current economy. Uh, Brad DeLong it seems to admire what they've done, at least in the last couple of years. Have they managed yeah. this economy better than they did, in two, at least according to, to Chris Leonard, in 2010 and 11? So, by the way, uh, I know Chris Leonard, and I interviewed him, um, put in a little plug. After they finish watching your excellent show, they should check out the New York Financial Writers Association interview that we did with Chris about his book. Um, I uh, think he's too harsh on the Fed, frankly. Um, I understand the argument that low interest rates can cause bubbles to form. But the problem that the central bank has is that it does not have a wide variety of instruments. Its main instrument is just raising or lowering interest rates. And if it tries to get too clever and see, well, let's see how we can keep the stock market from going up without causing the economy to fail, it could end up failing on both counts. Um, when you raise interest rates preemptively because you think stocks are too high, you end up hurting Main Street. And that is just an ineluctable problem um, that is frustrating, but there's really no good way out of it. That's the thing about economics, of course, isn't it? Every good deed or smart deed affects something else. Everything is connected. It's such a, it's such a hard thing to put together. You wrote an interesting uh, piece this year about the kind of storytelling that economics needs. We joked earlier about being a dismal science. No one really is proud of being an economist. Well, what do you think economists and economics need to tell a, a story that's more coherent and credible and that will result in people respecting economists ra rather than writing off their science as, as dismal? Well, I want to thank you for flashing up these pieces on the screen because, uh, Hey, more publicity, the better. Maybe people go back and read them. Um, uh, I do believe that it's human nature to 
listen to stories and be persuaded by stories. We've been doing it since uh, we were sitting around the fire in front of our caves. Not me personally, but or our Even ancestors. in New Jersey, you don't live in a yeah, cave, no, Peter? No, do not live in a cave. Um, but yeah, that's we're, we're wired to to think in terms of stories. So if somebody just gives us a number that's out of context, it just feels cold and meaningless. So, but that's what economists do. They, they work with numbers and, and trends and concepts and it doesn't come naturally to them. You know who Robert Schiller is at Yale? Um, yes, of course. He was the yeah, one he who, who called our irrational exuberance. Right, he wrote rational exuberance, but more recently he wrote a book, Narrative Economics, which is just all about narratives and the importance of crafting narratives that uh, resonate with the public. So that particular piece that you flashed up on the screen was about science fiction of all things. Because what do, what do science fiction writers do? It's not that different from what economists do. They, they're also, economists are trying to predict the future. Not all economists, but many macroeconomists are trying to predict the future. Science fiction writers are in a way trying to predict the future as well. And uh, in a much more fun way though. And, and all, but also in a more creative way. Well, good to, science fiction writers, the ones who we ones. read. Right, the ones you want to read. They, 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 they cause you to open up your mind and, and think about things you never would have thought about. And once you, once you read one of those stories, you can't, help, you can't stop thinking about those ideas. Whereas, unfortunately, a lot of economists, especially the ones who work on Wall Street, are so afraid of getting caught out making a mistake that they stick very close to the herd. Uh, and, you know, they may be just a little bit on the upside or the downside of the median projection, but they don't dare, most of them don't dare uh, come up with a completely different idea of what they think is going to happen. And the result is that we often get caught by surprise when things, because the, the real world is far more variable than the forecasts have it. You know, the, uh, economists aren't the only profession who are trying to figure out how to tell stories. We've done some shows on environmentalists and their need to tell stories. But in terms of 2022, Peter, is there a dominant narrative? If you were to tell one story about 2022 on the economics front, what would it be? I think it would have to be inflation because inflation hit 40-year highs. Uh, it wasn't since the bad old days of the very early 1980s. We had inflation like we had it this year. And people really hate inflation. It's kind of funny that way that uh, getting back to the difference between economists and the general public, there are a lot of economists who, of course, they don't like inflation, but they don't hate it with that visceral hatred that you get from just people in the supermarket. And one reason for that is they'll say, well, okay, prices went up, but wages also went up. And if Technically speaking, in a perfect world, if they went up the same amount, even if that was a very big amount, we'd all be the same. You know, if every if the rising tide lifts all boats, um, which is actually not that far from the truth. Uh, but people don't feel it that way. That uh, even if they did get a raise, they're focused more on the price than 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 the. But everyone has. I mean, some people have more savings than others. Inflation um, harms people who are quite conservative, people who, who save their cash, doesn't it, Peter? 
tell you the groups it hurts. It hurts anybody on a fixed income. So retirees, particularly? Re, not even all retirees, because let's say you live off Social Security. Well, Social Security is indexed to inflation. If that were your only source of income, you're fairly relatively protected. But if you're somebody with a little more money than that, and let's say you put all your money into bonds, well, those uh, interest payments on your bonds are not going up, but your prices are going up. So your standard of living is falling. You, uh, you wrote an interesting piece on retirement uh, this year in September. Uh, you wrote in, in retirement, you may not need to spend so much. How does inflation change the economics of retiring? Well, um, let's stick with this idea about if you have a big bond portfolio, then you are harmed. Now, eventually your bonds will um, mature and you'll buy new bonds with a higher interest rate and you'll kind of get back to where you wanna be. Um, stocks are less harmed by inflation than bonds because they represent an investment in companies which are able to raise prices and increase their nominal profits, which you share as a shareholder. Um, General, you uh, inflation help is uh, least harmful to people who are young and working and have many uh, are, are living off their income rather than their savings, assuming their income is rising correspondingly with the prices. So it's good for young people. A lot of people are going to be watching this and thinking. Maybe I should just spend my money. You wrote a, a, a piece uh, a few days ago. Buy now, regret later. Should we be? I mean, we're not living in quite as an inflationary times in December 2022 as we were earlier in the year. But isn't this the time, Peter, that we should be spending rather than saving? Well, that's what we've been doing. And that piece that you just showed, buy now, regret later. Um, I've, I've written actually a couple pieces. Uh, I, I wrote another piece just like a week before that saying that the national savings rate has fallen to the lowest. Let's see if you want to find it there. Uh, let me see. Yeah. Uh, okay. Nice. Uh, the, let me just, uh, well, don't worry. We'll, the, we'll go on. Give you the nutshell. The nutshell argument is that the national savings rate is extremely low right now. That when we say savings rate, what we mean is, out of all the income you have after you pay taxes, which is known as your disposable income, the share of it that people are saving is the lowest it's been since I think the 1950s or something with the exception of one year and uh, during the housing bubble. Um, so what that means is we are spending a lot. You don't need to encourage people to spend a lot. We're already doing it. And Americans spend uh, maybe because they're more optimistic, maybe because they're more materialistic, maybe because it's such a, a consumer society. But Americans spend naturally more than most other peoples, don't they? Well, certainly compared to the Chinese, uh, who are famous savers, um, Chinese have the opposite problem. They're, they're, the the savings rate is too high. Too much money is going into investment, including very wasteful investments, such as overbuilding of housing, factories, infrastructure. Uh, our problem is, uh, the United States problem is lack of uh, money for investment, which means we have a giant deficit, budget, um, trade deficit. But 
Well, the point of that article was the savings rate is so low now that it's bound to rise over the coming year. And when it does rise, that will be bad for corporate profits because people won't be spending as much uh, on the business sector's goods and services. That's another reason to think we might get a recession in 2023. We The economy's run faster, hotter than it would otherwise because people have been spending so much and it'll have to run cooler in the future uh, when they spend less. What about the role, Peter, of new technology in all this? Um, you wrote a piece uh, recently, you called it My So-So Encounters with Chat GPT. We've done a number of shows on Chat GBT, GPT. Um, it's obviously very significant. Can new technology like AI change it all, add value to the economy? Yes. Uh, I, I, I count myself as a techno-optimist uh, with caveats. Uh, in that particular piece, I took myself to task. I said, Peter, you're being too negative. You're trying to, be, you're trying to find faults in chat GPT instead of figuring out how to use it for your own benefit and society's benefit. So, you know, I found a little mistake where it, it made a mistake with the word ballet. And uh, I said, aha, see, made a mistake. And I thought, okay, that's a, that's a cheap discovery on my part. Meanwhile, there are all these computer scientists, programmers, professors of different kinds who have figured out ways to use ChatGPT, acknowledging that it's not perfect either, but using it to amplify their own powers and create value. And I think that's the way we should look at ChatGPT or really any yeah, we did a we did a show recently with Josh Browder, the founder and CEO of Do Not Pay. He's using the Chat GPT um, API to power his uh, his AI platform that will allow us to circumvent lawyers. Um, in in economic terms, is that good or bad? The fact that we can all now use AI to replace lawyers. It's obviously bad for lawyers. It's good for us. It's good right. for Josh. But what's the ultimate economic outcome, Peter? So let's abstract just from the lawyer example to the general topic of labor-saving technology. Um, the, the one argument is, well, that's a sign of progress and civilization. Um, if we were had not had any labor saving technology over the millennia, you know, we'd still be gathering raspberries from the bushes uh, to live on. That's another thing I don't do here in New Jersey, by the way, Andrew. You don't have any raspberries in the bushes? I, I don't rely on them. That's the point. Right. I like raspberries. Well, I do too. Okay. But you see, the point is like every revolution in technology saves labor and that's a good thing it, it in the short term it looks like a bad thing because people are out of work but they quickly are redeployed into new functions um you know we didn't have computer programmers a couple of generations ago uh we had very few massage therapists a few generations ago you know people who specialize in helping you uh fill out your wardrobe we didn't have those people they're all being gainfully employed now, providing new services instead of, uh, you know, trying to uh, 
make steel or something uh, because now the machines are doing that. So, so that, that's the argument that's a good thing. Now, the, the argument that it's a bad thing is that, well, this is different because AI is replacing functions that are intrinsically human rather than functions that are just machines that machines can do. And once AI comes for those jobs, then there's nothing left for people to do. Um, now, even that could be acceptable if, uh, you know, we all just sit on the couch all day uh, and have AI. Uh, one of my That's friends who's been on the show many times, Peter, before, Albert Wenger, who's a partner in Union Square Ventures, he describes this world as a, the world after capital. So we'll all be free to fully realize ourselves. I don't suppose that will uh, exist in 2023. You say this is different. What is clearly different that we haven't lived through before is the climate crisis. Uh, you've written about this. You ask whether fusion, which you've, you've written about, another technological development, uh, fusion research, uh, could help solve the climate crisis. How do you quantify the climate crisis in terms of economics? And how does that play out in 2022? Or how has it played out in 2022? So the economic theory of externality is that when we go through our daily lives consuming stuff, uh, we, we can create good things and bad things, a positive externalities. If we plant flowers in front of our house, then all the neighbors enjoy them. A negative one is if we put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, um, then it doesn't just harm us, it harms all the people around us. And so the economic solution is you find a way to counter those externalities by making people absorb all the costs of the damage they do to the planet. So if burning gasoline causes damage that others suffer, then maybe the price of gasoline is too low. Uh, you could fix that with uh, a carbon tax, but that's very unpopular. And so the Biden administration is focusing on uh, other things which are costly, but sort of indirectly. So the, in the budget, there's a lot of money for new technology that will... Yeah, this is the package. The, the... Yeah. Well, I'm thinking more about not so much this package, but the... Uh, you know, the Chips and Science Act and the... Uh, Do you get the, the sense in 2022, Peter, that much has changed on the the climate front? Yeah, climate yeah, there is. There, there was a, the Inflation Reduction Act, which despite its name, which is really just a marketing name, is a, a lot of it was about, a lot, big part of it was about doing stuff to fix the climate. And that really was a pretty dramatic change, expensive. And it, it's amazing that it got through Congress given the skepticism of a lot of people in Congress about... And yet America is still the only country not signing the, the latest agreement in Montreal, the COP, uh, the COP agreement. So things aren't perfect on the climate oh, no. front, are they? No, far from it. But I do think that if, you, you know, you asked me, what are the, land, uh, the uh, signposts of 2022? And I mentioned inflation. Well, I'd, I'd also have to mention some forward movement on dealing with climate change. What about the issue of equality and inequality and particularly amongst different groups of people? You wrote 
an interesting piece recently about Black Wall Street being burnt down in 1921. That was, of course, in Tulsa, but you suggest it's being revived. How important is it, Peter, in your mind, maybe not so much as an economist, perhaps as a citizen or as a philosopher, how important is it to confront our crisis of inequality, particularly when it comes to peoples of different color skins? For sure, for sure, yeah. It's been a big one that I, I keep coming back to in my newsletter, which, by the way, I hope everybody will read. Yeah, you can plug it. How do you how do you read it, Peter? How do you get? How do you read it? it? Just go to go to the New York Times website, and then click on the opinion link, and uh, or type in newsletters. And uh, so, even if you don't have a subscription to the New York Times, you can read it until you hit the paywall. But if you are a Times subscriber, you can sign up and it comes in your email three times a week. Well, I get it. It's excellent. So so back well, to Black you. Wall Street. Yeah. So Black Wall Street, that was uh, um, the terrible, terrible uh, massacre in, in Greenwood, which was known at the time as the Black Wall Street. And we've done and, a couple of shows on on that great yeah. crime, historical yeah. crime. Yeah. So um, I talked to a woman who said she grew up there in you know, when, when the topic would come up, it was always like a warning, like, be careful. It's a, it's a dangerous world out there. But she turned it around and said, wait, the, there was a Black Wall Street here? She got inspiration from that. She said, that's impressive that we, uh, you know, the African-American community had built this thing and we can do it again. It's not going to look the same. There's not going to be a particular neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that will be Black Wall Street. But there will be there is an opportunity for more and more African-Americans to uh, build wealth uh, through uh, innovation, entrepreneurship and investment. And that's what she and others are trying to achieve. And I'm like hugely behind that because it's like it's a bootstrapping effort for extremely uh, positive purposes. And it's good for everybody. It's certainly good for everyone. And I think we can all agree we want to see more of that in 2023. What else should we want to see, Peter, in 2023? And what should we fear on the economics front? Okay, so we want to see inflation coming back down. Uh, we'd love to see an end to the war in Ukraine, which is, you know, it's a geopolitical event, but it's also an economic event. It's, it's, uh, and then in China, we would love to see China... Uh, overcome its COVID problem because uh, it's it's bad for the world when China's economy uh, suffers because of these intermittent lockdowns and outbreaks. Um, yeah, today the headlines are 250. We believe that 250 million Chinese people have been infected with COVID. Are, are you on Joe Biden's page when it comes to chip warfare and tariffs, Peter? You know, that's, a I have to say, a very tough one because I guess I'm congenitally a free trader. Um, but on the other hand, I see the threat uh, of China. I, th I, I think that uh, Xi Jinping has been a very bad influence on China and leading it into a very militaristic and antagonistic uh, mm. approach. And so I, and, and I do worry that, He's going to try to invade Taiwan and seize it. Hopefully um, not in 2023. So in addition to confronting inflation, what else 
do we need to do in 2023 on the economics front? Find a way to uh, balance the desire to quell inflation with the uh, with trying to keep the economy healthy, um, keep it out of recession, or if there is a recession, try to minimize it so we can get back to uh, growth so that everybody who wants a job can have one. And then what should we fear? What, what's the worst case scenario, Peter, for 2023? I would say some kind of stagflation where inflation doesn't really go away, but, but growth slumps. And um, that could happen for a number of reasons, just bad policy by the Federal Reserve or global problems such as we've talked about Russia, China, um, I don't want to end on a uh, down note and would come, you know, into the holiday season. Uh, I, I, I want to be positive, but um, there, there are things to be concerned about. And finally, Peter, our viewers, listeners, they can't determine economic policy. They certainly can't end the Ukraine war, but they can control their spending. They can take their money out of the stock market. They can invest in bonds. They can put their cash under the table. They can put it into a new Tesla. Any advice on that front? I know it's hard, but what should people bear in mind when they determine their own personal economic strategy, what they do with their money in 2023? So I'm not a personal finance writer, but I, I would say make sure you have a cushion, um, like six months of uh, ideally of uh, liquid resources that you can spend just in case you lose your job or you have a big medical expense that insurance doesn't cover, it's always a good idea to have peace of mind. And that should come first ahead of any particular material possession. Excellent. 